This is Darker Days number 71, and this time round, myself and Mike. Hey, how's it going? Hello, and I'm joined by James. Hi there. And of course, I'm one of your regular hosts, Chris. And we are joined by some excellent, excellent uh, guests for our show this time around. Uh, we have got uh, Tomas Piranen and Andy Chambers, who uh, are currently uh, both working for, or set up, I think it's more appropriately, um, Reforged Games, uh, which is a computer games company, but I guess people who are more knowledgeable of uh, certain properties, such as uh, Mordheim and 40k and Necromunda, all uh, by Games Workshop, will recognize their names from that. So, um, hello, thank you for joining us on Darker Days Radio and for taking the time to talk to us. Hi, guys. <laughs> That'll always happen, the speaking over. That's the <laughs> joy of podcast. Hello, Thomas here. Nice to be talking to all of you. So, Reforge Studios, Ubisoft, Games Workshop, EA, Warhammer, Mordheim, 40K, you name it. Is the, I've been doing this for longer than it's healthy to, to admit. <laughs> And Andy, yeah, yeah, you've hi guys. Uh, yeah, you've got quite a list of uh, things you've worked on um, at Games Workshop and beyond. Do you want to go through? A go, just give us a, a, a gist of the things you've uh, worked on. Give you a quick litany. Yes, yeah. uh, uh, worked, uh, at Games Workshop for fourteen years. Um, I started out like in mail order, actually, originally, originally, and then up through like taking photographs and writing white dwarf articles. Uh, I worked on second, third, and fourth editions of Warhammer 40,000 uh, as increasingly the lead designer. Uh, I also worked on Necromunda, Gorkamorka, Battlefleet Gothic, Space Marine, uh, Epic 40,000, and other ones I can't remember, and more codexes than you can eat, more White Dwarf articles than it is at all healthy, like one a month for 14 years. After that, uh, I went and worked at Blizzard uh, as creative director there on StarCraft II and became a lead writer on StarCraft 2. And after that, I've been freelancing and running around all kinds of different tabletop and digital projects. And now I've linked up again with uh, Thomas, who's you know an old colleague from my GW days, for working at Reforged Studios. It's something very new and exciting. Excellent. Cool, cool, cool. Um, so just briefly, can we do this on uh, Dark Days? Um, what gaming type stuff have people got up to recently? Uh, James, you've been up to anything gaming wise? Yeah, it's a bit uh, it's a bit odd for me because um, I've just moved down to Brighton, so I don't really have very much stuff with me at the moment. Uh, so I'm I'm trying to complete Bloodborne before Dark Souls Three comes out on Wednesday, <laughs> and it, it turns out basically coming back to the game after about a year is probably not where you want to be when fighting some of the end bosses. Like, I'm walking in there and I'm going, like, what button is attack? How do I, how do I heal? What, what do all these... What's my moveset? And, and, you know, bosses don't really give you very much uh, very much time to work that out. Um, but I'm enjoying the creepy. I'm enjoying it. 
Excellent. Excellent. You'll have to tell some more about that when we do a, another show. Uh, Mike, gaming-wise, you were uh, up to anything? You know, it's been a little bit quiet uh, since we last recorded an episode. Uh, we've only had one session of uh, D&D 4th, uh, 5th Edition and only one session of Shadowrun. So things have been uh, a, little, a little calm, but uh, in that, you know, kind of uh, uh, pause and reflection, uh, I kind of grabbed some of my old... Uh, Warhammer uh, fantasy roleplay books and uh, some of the Rogue Trader um, RPG mm. books and was kind of flipping through them in preparation for this episode. So pretty psyched to uh, talk with these two fine uh, giants of gaming this episode. Excellent. Um, I'm trying to think what I've done. Um, more Journeyman League. I am second in the league. That's good for War Machine Hordes. I'm very happy with myself there. And Geist is looking like it's being set up. And, you know, this week I've been at a conference, which has basically meant at one point me and my boss were sat in the pub after doing our science for the day instead of talking about Cthulhu and wargaming and stuff. So that's been fun. Um, Tomas, you're, you, you said you were going off to this uh, convention dressed as what today? I think I'm, I'm doing a Sith Lord. It's oh, the, the I find it really yeah yeah Star Wars is huge now again with the new movie out and the 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 Rogue One coming out as well it's the so it's immense here and I really like to talk to the people who are at the end of the day are my audience so that I'm not this game designer whose games they played or it's the the whatever it's computer games or tabletop games. I just want to hear really what people are into and what they're talking about right now. And that's much easier if I can go incognito. Mm-hmm. So the, the oh, yeah. doing a, a costume, it's the apart from being marvelous fun, is a good way for me to actually keep in touch with the the with the people that at the end of the day I'm making games for. It's the, the, I mean, I enjoy it, but the side benefit of it is that people are around you like they would be with anybody else. And I really love having my finger on the pulse of the industry because it's, it's happened to a lot of the people I know, especially in the digital gaming industry, that they've gotten so far removed from the, the, the gaming fans that it actually, you end up doing stuff that the, the, uh, your audience is no longer connecting with. So, um, But most of all, it's fun and relaxing. I'll send you pictures. <laughs> Indeed, that would be great. As you um, said, Thomas, you've got an excellent voice for Sith Lord as well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I am the Senate. <laughs> <laughs> right, and Andy, you've been doing any uh, particular gaming for yourself recently? <laughs> always, yes, <I'm> always. Capable. <laughs> Let me see what I've been up to. Actually, today I'll, I'll give you my sad story of today, which is I've been playing Planet Side Two on PlayStation Four all day, desperately trying to claw back my kill death ratio from having a bad week. It's been like I had magnets stuck to my head all week, you know, attracting <laughs> bullets. But fortunately, I've had a storming day today, and we've actually gone up 0.005 on my kill death ratio, which, sadly enough, means something to me. <laughs> And apart from that, actually, I was put very much in mind of what you were saying about Bloodborne because we watched Mad Max Fury Road. We got um, Sky Movies this week, so we watched Mad Max Fury Road again, which I haven't mm-hmm. seen since the story It was like, oh, that's so good. And it made me want to go back to playing Mad Max on PlayStation, which I'd kind of played many hours for and then quit uh, to start playing The Witcher instead. Uh-huh. And I went back and sort of left off part of where it stopped, as ever, as is often the case with games. I had a boss fight which was giving me trouble. And 
coming back in and I keep this sauce. Cool. Uh, and other than that, my, my more credible thing that I should say is that this week I did a seminar on gamification at Nottingham University. All right. Oh. Um, mostly for a, a kind of academic, academic audience and just talking about it from a, an industry perspective mm. because the reason they're interested in it is the, the application of gamification when it comes to education. Yes. Uh, yeah. You can use it to motivate students and stuff like that and as well as, you know, fitness and all the other kind of non, what we would consider gaming uses of gamification. I can see uh, that, definitely, because obviously one of the things um, I see, you know, like, certain colleagues at work are writing is uh, these massively online, uh, what are they called, massive online something, something, they call them MOOCs or something, but they're like online learning courses, so... Yep. I imagine that fits in very well, especially when you're doing digital-based learning. Remote learning these days as well, of course, and very good for that too. Gamification in the, the current sense of the way it's taught, all I could really teach them about was games design over an extended period of time and experience with game systems and mm. how they mutate when the players mm. get hold of them. God bless them. <laughs> yes. Uh, and unexpected consequences and how you manage that and also how games break down into kind of like, you know, you've got the game itself and you've got a, like a micro level of kind of your skill at the game um, mm. and then this meta level of how you can just have better knowledge overall about the game and make decisions within the game based on the kind of meta knowledge of the game. Uh, right. And the fact that, so that the game actually exists on a couple of other levels as well once players start getting into it and how to think about it in those terms. You know, is there the possibility in your gamification that you can excel at it? Yes. And prove yourself to be better than, well, what? But mm. it's important to have that competitive version. La, 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 all that sort of stuff. So and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed doing that. I, I like talking about things I've been doing for yes. 26 years, cool. oddly enough, because I kind of like them. I think that's a good point where, and uh, we move then from uh, the... Mike, do we want to? Act? We're not going to bother with White Wolf news, are we, Mike? We'll do that next time. I didn't write anything down, so let's skip. No, nah. <laughs> yeah, we got. We normally do a news section, but really, let's not bother for this you one. You can insert it later. Think of it that way. No, oh, there's nothing really that new. Anyway, um, so we'll move over then to the uh, the main actual uh, interview segment of this show, and uh, I think now's a good point. Topics of highbrow storytelling. So, um, so the main interview, the main theme of, of this, uh, of this um, pod was really about um, how game mechanics uh, can be used to reinforce telling a story uh, within both computer games, war games, RPGs, or any type of, of game type of media. Uh, because you can, I think this is one of the things we come up against uh, a lot when we're talking about, especially for role-play games, where there's such a variety of how role-player games are created, and some can be very simulationist, some can be very uh, game, more game-based, so they're not trying to simulate anything, but they're just trying to be a good game. And others, instead, use mechanics to kind of nudge and reinforce the, the role-play and storytelling going on in there. So given that you, Andy, and Tomas have got such a wide breadth of experience and and, uh, and lots of experience in, in both different uh, media projects and also and games themselves. Uh, it seemed like the ideal kind of uh, topic to both listen to what you have to say about the projects you've worked on and, and what you've really enjoyed working on and also what you feel 
um, games design has done for gaming over the years, and, and really what's the next big things maybe, as, as obviously we've got touch screens and virtual reality, and, and where, do, where do these type of things fit in with traditional board games, war games, car games, and so forth. Um, so if we're happy with that kind of theme, um, we can carry on with the first question then. Um, Mike, do you want to field the first question? Yeah, yeah, I can definitely do that. So uh, when you're formulating game mechanics, uh, what do you think is easier? Uh, designing mechanics for an established or uh, in-house developed IP, uh, or is it actually easier to design a type of game and then try to match the setting and material to it? You know, you guys have worked uh, quite extensively, of course, with, uh, with Games Workshop. So uh, do you guys usually come up with, man, maybe we should do like uh, some sort of a naval game. And then you think about, oh, well, you can link it up pretty well with, with 40K and go from there. You know, matching the mechanics you're coming up with to the setting itself. What, what, what was the kind of the general approach in these different situations that you've encountered in your, uh, you know, illustrious careers? You, you go first, Thomas. Okay. Now, that's an interesting question I think that uh, varies from designer to designer it's the for example with uh, Mordheim it's got its start as a, a a we were just laughing at the studio of all the crazy people it was in the year 1999 and we were laughing at the crazy people who were saying that the, the world is gonna end in 2000 and me and Rick and Andy were rolling on the floor and laughing at them and we thought you know what this is exactly the kind of stuff that the, the the mad religious lunatics in the Warhammer world would get up to. So let's see what the world was like in 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 the Warhammer world in 2000. And we found that this was a perfect period. The empire was in flames. All the factions were fighting each other. Magic was illegal, so there was no schools of wizardry. It's the the great chaos incursion was boiling up, and the we decided this is a great place for a game. And then we thought that the, we want to do a skirmish game as an introduction to the players uh, into the the main game of Warhammer. And since the, the we all love Necromunda, it's the the we thought that the maybe we can do something similar in the Warhammer space. So to me, it's often started with a fiction, with an idea. It's the stuff like, wouldn't it be cool if you could play a game where you are like the Marines in Aliens, that you have a squad of badass. Uh, uh, soldiers going into the nest of the aliens, and then you end up maybe something a bit like a space hulk. I personally need the idea. It would be very hard for me to write just a clever rule mechanic and then try to build a game around it. I am myself inspired by stories, by characters, by events. Uh, having said that, I've met designers who are very technically minded, and they come up with a really clever game mechanic, and then they find, try to find a game to build it around. But the, the, to me, every game I've done, even if I've known that we want a game in a certain space, it's always started with me with an idea. In the beginning, it's mm -hmm. the, I need that for myself. So that's, that's for me. Perhaps unsurprisingly, I'm very much aligned with Thomas on this one. I was, I was just sitting here thinking about it, actually. And it, it's always... Yeah, it's always that mental image that comes first, you know, the, the Marines creeping around in the alien nest. And it, the, the one for me is always Battlefleet Gothic, which was the, you know, giant cathedrals in space blasting the hell out of each other. Mm -hmm. And after that comes the quest for the right mechanics to go with it to, to invoke that, to evoke those feelings and, and to, to get, 
you into the position, into the boots of that particular commander or that particular soldier on the field or what have you. Uh, so you, you said, you know, mechanics can support uh, the, the, the idea behind a game, but uh, I'd go further than that and say that they have to support the game that they're, they're purporting to show you. And yeah, funky mechanics in their own right. You see more of this in the, the digital realm, I think, because it's more wide open. But when it comes to tabletop, um, there's only so much you can do, really, mm -hmm. with miniatures on a tabletop. But within that, there, there are all kinds of, I don't know, different instruments in the orchestra you can use for game mechanics, which will make it more like a skirmish, more like a fleet battle, more like a tank battle, more like a titan battle. And at each step, you make you make a lot of tiny decisions, which actually come together to form the mechanics for that game, yeah. uh, and give it a strong feeling. I think and I think that's really key. I think it's interesting. You, you but when you say about the different choices you make in those mechanics to 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 give that kind of the right type of feeling for that game, because I um I watched your interview on Beast War about the design of uh, Drop Fleet Commander, which is coming out mm. from War Games. Of course, it's a spaceship game. But it's not Battlefleet Gothic in the in in so many so many ways. It's they're not the same because the rules that you're you're using, trying to portray what the technology is like, what these what these spacecrafts are like, and, and what the the battle environment is meant to be. You know, Battlefleet Gothic takes place in the, the vast voids of 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 space and in asteroid fields and and so forth, whereas. Drop Fleet Commander is all about you know that 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 last push to 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 land all your troops on on a certain planet and take over and and they really demand very different mechanics to get across those different styles of story and and gameplay. Yeah, it, it was interesting to be able to come around again and do another spaceship game, as it mm. were. Um, consider myself very fortunate to have that opportunity. Um, but of course, you know, having done one, in the time ever since then, and had various thoughts going around in my head, mechanics, actually, if you will, for how to deal with different things. One of the things that always bothered me was, like, why do we have range bands in space? <laughs> yeah. You know, why can this laser shoot 30 centimeters on the tabletop and that one can shoot four? And I kind of saw started drilling down mentally into that and thinking about different ways of handling it. So when I came around to actually doing Drop Fleet Commander, I, I wanted to try some mechanics out which would be different about how you handled ranges in space and things like that. And as you say, the, the, the fact that the Hawk guys, you know, they wanted it rooted very closely into Drop Zone Commander, their 10 mil game that they have. So it had this sort of like natural narrative of making the, the big drop down onto the planet itself, getting your drop ships down there to drop off your tanks and your guys to conquer cities and things like that, uh, which is a very compelling narrative. So and it, it, that gave it actually another natural mechanic. It needed to have something about being in orbit and the fact that you could crash in flames into the atmosphere because what's the point of a spaceship game if you can't <laughs> crash in flames into the atmosphere? Yeah. It's it, it's it's also interesting for me because um, one of the things which I've been doing on the side is I and it's still looking to be uh, playtesting's finishing off is the new edition of Noble Armada for FASA. Mm -hmm. So the first edition of that years ago was very much they try to do hex-based vector motion, so your ship mm. can face a completely different direction to the way it's moving. You look at that, you read through and. My and it's an it's an old RP well, old, yeah. old old book and I looked at it and went, 
Yeah. That just makes my eyes bleed. And, <laughs> and yeah, then you look at the second uh, edition. Uh, I'm of the opinion that it makes a terrible game as well. Actually, it's hard to... What the hell's going on? It's hard to track. Around. It's hard yeah. to track it. And as much as you want that kind of feeling of... Um, what is it? The the uh, star furies in, in Babylon Five that can literally just turn on a point. Mm. I really started thinking hard about about. So you, you start delving into st- spaceship power, and I was like, a ship really can't just spin on a point like that because the actual physics it, it assumes a lot. It actually assumes yes. a lot, and so you actually realise that ships turning quite gradually, kind of by doing you know they can only turn at a certain rate, was still actually a viable and quite realistic. And then also, the second edition of, of Noble Armada, in my mind, was a bit too close to Battlefleet Gothic. So we've done a lot of work to be, we're not that. And <laughs> since you did your interview on Beast of War, I was like, and we're definitely not that. We're no, definitely not that either, damn it. That, well, I wasn't that we can't be that. I was like, well, at least we haven't designed it like that. We've definitely got a different theme and, and mood for the game, which fits that setting. So it's just wonderful how you can have Spaceship games that all have very different mechanics and thus act very well, differently. It. But it goes back to what we we're talking about. You're using different mechanics to evoke a different feel. Mm. Um, so, like the Battlefleet Gothic, to continue the spaceship example, since we're there, the Battlefleet Gothic ships are, you know, they're these thunderous great things that can absorb a lot of damage and they die very, very gradually, sort of thing. Mm, it's, yeah. It's a, every time one goes down in flames, it's a tragedy. You know, it's a named ship that's gone forever. And Dropfleet Command is not like that at all. You know, they they turn out these ships like cookies. <laughs> yes. Nonetheless, they can take a hell of a pounding. But there's a lot going on in a Dropfleet Commander battle, and it, it's very uh, it's very deadly. Um, so they you know they've got very contrasting mechanics in them that, that evoke different sorts of spaceship games. And what you're saying again about Noble Armada is you're you're again trying to evoke a different kind of spaceship game. You know. A fighter combat game in space is going to be different to a battle cruisers game in space. This is going to be different to a battleships game in space. Which goes back to what I was saying earlier. Mm. And the concept behind Battlefleet Gothic, I'd say, was always space battle of Jutland. Really. Yeah. Big dreadnoughts throwing shells at each other. Uh, whereas Dropfleet Commander is, is a lot more modern. It's, it's kind of based on Harpoon and games like that from back in the 80s and 90s. Um. James, Mike, do you want to follow up on anything on that question about you know developing for an established IP or developing for you know a game and then trying to fit to an IP? I don't know, James. Have you got some input on that? Um, I was going to ask a question. Um, I was going to ask a very similar question later. Um, as someone who's because I've worked on some very strictly controlled IPs where you don't really have as much. Um, as much control of the story and things, and even, I mean, heck, I worked on Magic the Gathering, so I had very little control of the story and mechanics. It was mostly a, a wrapper for it. Um, uh, and, yeah, I was wondering, like, did you start, where do you start, genre, theme, mechanics? Because creating that... Um, oh, it's I, gonna be... I've got a, quite an interesting interesting a, a anecdote on this. It's the, the like, the, it's the Balfour Gothic, which now is the granddaddy of the, in many ways, of the Space Fleet games. I mean, it almost didn't happen. What happened, I mean, it was canned two times, Andy. I remember you stomping around angrily at the studio. It, 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 yeah. And the Andy, 
the work. He built models by hand and scavenged PCs and ran playtest games to to get the people at the studio excited about it. It's the mm. and it was all that like the the Andy said uh, was getting the idea of the of the fantasy of these giant lumbering ships fighting against Azure. Because in the the design studio, we needed to get people excited about what we were doing. When I did Mordheim, I built the whole freaking city as a model with the help from the the mighty Perry uh, twins. It's the, so this, yes, we were working on established IP, but in many ways to me, it was like creating something from ground up. And I do mean like, this is what it looks like. Look, I built the model. So it's not like Magic the Gathering. It's the, mm. the at least for us, it wasn't the experience. I, but we really clawed from a very slippery pit of those games into the, the light. It's the, the, That's really yeah. Cool. I mean, one of the RAs, uh, sorry to keep digging on about BFG, but it makes a good example. It was originally, originally, originally a game worth being worked on by a different designer when I first joined Games Workshop. Uh, and that got canned. And then I did a, a game which was uh, game mechanics which were based around cards. And then I canned that because that didn't feel right either. And then I say, uh, actually got the game going, and then it was going to get published, and then didn't get published a couple of times. We workshop, but I kept hammering away at it mm. because it was something that I felt that the Warhammer Forty Thousand universe needed a good spaceship game to top it all off. Because we had a skirmish game, and we had a battle game, and we had a like a giant battles game with loads of tanks and titans and things like that. But there wasn't the thing on the top of it, so I felt very passionate about it. And yeah. A lot of it often does come down to your passion drawing other people along. I always remember uh, Necromunda and Blood Bowl as well, because we had a very uh, a good gaming environment at the studio in those days. And Jervis, God bless him, ran leagues for both of those. And we just had a fantastic take-up from that. The leagues were always incredibly busy. You could always get games at lunchtime or in the evening. And it got to the point where rivalries and people sending each other threatening letters and things like that. <laughs> you had the same thing with Mordheim, didn't you? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Really I mean, this thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I ran a campaign. I, I did the Town Crier newsletter. There really is often. I get this the 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 message from the people. They said, that, "Oh, at the Games Workshop, there probably was this big board meeting." And then the director <laughs> said, "Sign four two two five seven. You will now design a." Space Fleet game for Warhammer 40k universe execute, and it isn't like that at all. It hasn't mm. been anywhere where I've been. I mean, without if I don't have the passion for the for the the, the fantasy, the fiction, the story of the game, it won't ever get off from ground. Yeah, nice. And uh, just for our listeners, because we're typically a, a World of Darkness podcast, where we're, we always branch out into certain things, and we're big uh, fans of uh, a bunch of the, the Games Workshop properties. Uh, actually, White Wolf used to have a Blood Bowl League at lunchtime, so it's pretty funny <laughs> that uh, they were they were into that game so much as well. Uh, which is definitely well, it's, it's, it's one of the truisms, actually. You know, I've worked around a, a number of studios in the States and stuff like that now as well, and most of them have got, you know, they play 40k, or they play Blood Bowl, or something like that. Or they play Necromunda, um, or War Machine these days as well. Or what's the other one? Infinity. That's quite popular. Infinity is basically yeah. how many tabletop miniatures players you find in digital studios who keep it up because it's not digital; it's something different and tactile. Uh, so it has value in its own right. Hmm. Absolutely. And something I've uh, mentioned to a couple of designers that I've talked to at like, uh, the PAX conventions is that tabletop games are uh, significantly more accessible 
uh, even for designers, because the mechanics are just codified right in front of you. It's very easy yeah. to uh, uh, be able to discuss things and learn from them, as opposed yes. to you know trying to get that kind of gnosis and secret knowledge of what was actually coded into a, a digital property, a digital game. Yes, so, yeah, it, it must be said, and Thomas can back me up on this, that, that doing tabletop games, I mean, in many regards, it's, it's laughably simple in comparison to producing a digital game. There, there, there are so few uh, different elements. But at the same time, it's got to be really, really perfect mm. um, because you are lim- sort of working with this very limited palette on a, a small area. So it's got to be a, a beautiful little example of whatever it is. Uh, digital games are, are harder in, in many ways because you, you have everything. You can have anything at all, potentially. It all just takes, takes time and man hours, and it might not be the best decision. So um, in, in terms of actually producing a digital game, there's, there's far deeper pits to fall into, I tend to feel, than there is with uh, tabletop games. You, you mentioned uh, pitfalls with digital. I suppose mm. that's, um, it's quite interesting because you also get a lot of balancing happening after games are released digitally, whereas um, with board games or actual physical products, it's very difficult to say, oh, that, that rule in the rule book, it's not, it's not what it, it says. You know, it, it was a thing for me when I started at Blizzard, uh, the idea that I was actually moving into an environment where if you wanted to change things, you could just change them. You could just put a patch out, and everybody's games would change, and that would be it. The end. You don't have to worry about whether they read the appropriate White Dwarf article with the, the updates in it, or <laughs> they could find your FAQ on the website and knew about it and all the rest of these things. Of course, it's not that simple. In fact, it's considerably less simple in some regards to patch a game uh, than to use the same sort of techniques with tabletop. Um, Because with tabletop, there's more flex there at the end of the day because you're dealing with people and people brains. So they can figure things out for themselves and they can disseminate knowledge to each other in a way that uh, (laughs) PCs and digital games can't. So you can do things like patch it and break it and make it worse. I was going to say, patching things is quite... It, I, it's dangerous. Because dangerous you've got, territory. Because you've yeah. got so many, as you say, because you you've got so much you can use, and depending upon how, how granular the game is in terms of various things interacting and how much stimulation of, of actions is going on and how much information is, is being communicated between different, whether it's different characters or different units and and their weapons and so forth and so forth. Um, it, it's it's in danger of becoming a very much a, a black box where it's very hard to see fully a change that you think should work, how it actually then propagates out through this this layers and layers of of gathering chaos until it has some unexpected outcome. Um, that's that's just me commenting from what I do for work is that. This is a very big problem for for simulating things in general and trying to make models, and uh, yeah, d- thinking that a game should be a model is uh, it could be quite dangerous if you've got so much interacting. Hmm. Okay. Um, shall we move on to the next the next question because that's mostly relates to this um, quite yeah. well, which is um, so when designing mechanics, how difficult is it? as a process, uh, when the desire is to design certain me- mechanics that reinforce the setting, uh, tone, and, and mood, and uh, and the internal logic of the game, but then 
the your you, you've been tasked. You also have the task of delivering a certain type of final game experience that may have uh, choices that you need to make. That means you have to compromise on the certain designs, uh, designs and game mechanics you you uh, create. So, how often or have you got good examples of where you know you go? I really want say you know Mordheim has to have this kind of feel, but the mechanics we we initially came up with, they don't they don't allow it to be as good as game as it could be, or as fast flowing, or as exciting. And so you have to have some yeah. have to make changes and modifications to bring to make it a better yeah. uh, unification of rules and also game experience. All the time, all the time. This is the the Jervis, whom both me and Andy work with and 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 respect a, a great deal. It's one of his rules. is called murder your darlings, mm. and his basic rule I was that find your game <laughs> that is your favorite and cut it out from the game. Doesn't matter if you think it's the best rule ever, but either you are emotionally attached, you won't see the forest from the trees, you just will do anything to keep your favorite little toy in the game. Get rid of it right now so you can focus on the overall quality. It's the the and the message really was that the the uh, at the end of the day it's the nothing no individual building block can be more important than the whole and the the movement in the games anyway has been going towards the easy to pick up difficult to master it's the so the the, the games nowadays e tabletop or on the console are not as complex at least from the interface and rules wise and the learning wise as they used to be like the the, the mind numbing detail is starting to be a very small niche and the trick there is a good designer can make a deep game, a replayable game. It's the game that's hard to master. It's the, the with very simple rule set. I mean, one of the biggest draws for all the games that the I made that live for a long time uh, is that the players will find every time they play a new game, something new will happen. They had a new kind of army list or warband or gang they made and they equipped it differently, or they did a different move, or the combination of the rules allowed something, some new experience, emergent gameplay, to come out of it. The trick is, how can you create that without just writing reams of rules for people to remember? So I'm a, an, uh, to answer your question, in every single game I've worked on, I've, I've, I've made the game better by the cuts I made rather than the, the, the ad additions I put in. Excellent. Uh, Andy, um, I'm sure you've got some <laughs> excellent thoughts on this as well. Well, this is a, the, I come from the same school, basically, so I was also taught murder your darlings at your mother's knee, and it's very true. Uh, the times I haven't done it, I've regretted it. Um, there is not really any rule system that you create that will not benefit from you sort of trimming it down and figuring out what the, the core principles of it are and cutting out the extraneous Ooh, wouldn't that be a cool idea? Things that you get on the periphery, and you can start out having a cool idea for what it should be, and that actually eventually gets overshadowed by something else. And you've got to know when to let that cool idea go. Uh, it's is, very, very true to mechanics. Is that? Um, I mean, that must be quite important then, both for for um, for digital games as well, because as you said, there's so much you could potentially put into a game, and then. Judging every edition and whether it is actually adding anything of, of value to the game, uh, 
is that quite difficult for, for digital games then? Would, would you say it's more difficult when people do want to put so much into them and, and make these games so large and broad and, and convoluted? Yeah, I mean, I worked on a lot of uh, console games, and Andy obviously, uh, like the Need for Speed franchise, and Andy obviously worked on StarCraft 2, and they don't come bigger than that. And yeah. the arms race there is tremendous. Like, the, the fans always say that we want billion new features, even though they don't actually know what that would mean. It would mean a worse game. The, all the companies are pushing the graphical fidelity, the number of features, the multiplayer, the, the online connectivity, you name it, there is an incredible list of things that a modern video game requires. And it also uh, is very expensive, like the, the budgets are now running into hundreds of millions for the biggest games, which is just insane amount of money. And if you make wrong choices, you're not just causing a, oops, we have to rewrite this page of rules. You are causing millions of dollars of damage mm -hmm. every time. So the, what you don't do is actually at least as important. You must have a competitive product, and it has to be a good game, but you can easily sync the schedule and the quality of the game by bloat. Mm -hmm. And the, the uh, and really these the, the modern video game projects are so big that the the these decisions it's the and you have to make many of them in every game because those things are so damn big now is the decision is really momentous and it's the the causes a plenty of stress but yeah at least on tabletop if mm. I wrote I spend a month writing a rule that the, the in the end I had to cut it'll hurt but it doesn't mean that a a dozens of man hours of the some of the most expensive people in the uh, on earth were wasted it's, and and you have to recall it. It's, it's just a it's just a page that may get half it or or more, or more deleted and uh, it doesn't change the miniatures. But for example, the miniatures fortunately are kind of safe from changes like that. I was going to follow that up with something. Uh, another thought, actually. How do you think then, as we now have touch screens and all these wonderful smart devices, is there a danger? for that kind of bloat to creep into tabletop games because we've got wonderful um, you know, smart enabled games uh, one which I really like is uh, called Leaders um, uh, the, a combined game so it's Risk but the, the tablet gives you added value because it gives you the um, it gives you the type of mechanics and, and interplay that you normally see in say in Civ games so, you know, it, it allows you to manage in a very fair manner, uh, you know, tech trees and espionage and spying and and uh, alliances, and then you can backstab someone, of course. And then, of course, uh, I think XCOM has a smart-enabled board game. So, do you do you think these are the, the that there's a there's a there's a danger, a pitfall that you could go? Oh, wow, we've got smart tech. We can make these games really, really. Put all these systems in, but then again, you're missing the point because it makes the game impenetrable to the user. I'm um, not myself very worried about that for a couple of reasons. It's the 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 you tend to you play board games. It's the the when you are actually want to spend time with your friends and not have your digital device out, and you want to talk to them. Part of the the experience, like playing something like Catan. Is the trading, which is very psychological, and mm -hmm. the, the you cheerfully insult everybody else, <laughs> yes. and the the 
while the something like touch screens, the great thing about them is that I can play any almost anywhere uh, and get into the game immediately and hook up with my clan around the globe. So not around the table, but around the whole planet. I can play a multiplayer game that's uh, the the connected. It's a different. It it occupies a different part of my life now. Having a multimedia game like the ones you mentioned and the the uh, or the ones like Skylanders, which has a they, which is a toys to life game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the the those overlapping things. I think they are cool and new, but I don't think that the the there is ever going to be a moment when the we wouldn't like to have a beautiful playing pieces and a greatly done board and our friends around it with maybe a couple of pints of beer in our hands. It's the, the, if you're so inclined. And the, the having a game that's as much a social interaction as it is a game. While a digital games tend to be, they can be very social, but not in the same way, because there is something about being physical presence with the other people. So I'm not, I'm not threatened by that at all. I think the, the both will flourish, and the new multimedia games have a place to flourish too. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because um, the digital games actually do the granularity really, really well. It's, it's kind of their strength more than anything else. Uh, far more so than a tabletop game or a board game where you're, you're relying on the poor old bit of wetware inside your head to figure it all out. A lot of it comes, I think, down to the games designers and their experience about how far they let themselves go down that rabbit hole. And you can find, in, in terms of digital games, you know, the entire range from things that go into painstaking detail as simulations about every last possible feature through to things that are very, very simple. Hmm. Um, and even within a title, I mean, Civ uh, has been going through some interesting revolutions, no pun intended, in terms of producing a consoleized version, you know, Civ Rev, which has actually worked out really well on tablet as well. And it's kind of quite a different game to traditional civilization, and yet it's not, and yet it is, and yet it's not. Hmm. So I, I, that I find fascinating, the fact that it can kind of mutate off different offspring uh, depending on which particular kind of media you're using to create a game. And they've all got their own merits uh, and their own strengths and weaknesses in terms of games design and mechanics that they can use successfully. Yeah. No, it was mainly, it's a thought, because obviously I know that there's been attempts to interface smart tech with war games. So, for example, I think there was uh, Exilis, and it, mm-hmm. it basically, it, it was, well, you're just replicating it on the computer or on the tablet exactly what you're doing on the board. So what is the the added value of having the technology there? And I think that's where, if you're going to have smart tech, it has to be it has to be added value, and it has to be something which is hard to do on the tabletop, yet by having it in the game, it's also not being so intrusive that you're damaging that that social experience, as Tomas was saying, is the joy of playing Catan, where you're asking for, you know, sheep for wood and so yeah. forth. I've got wood for your sheep. And so yeah. Forth. Um, James, Mike, you got anything else you want to draw up on that one? Or any other ideas? Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting, uh, anecdotally. Uh, Thomas, you mentioned that... Uh, you know, sometimes you can't listen to the fans exactly, and I know uh, that there is at least one historical case, uh, a game called a PC game called Tribes Two, where the developers tried really hard to keep the fans happy, and it pretty much destroyed their game. Uh, that one, uh, they did things like you know rebalancing mechanics, which didn't work out, and then also just allowing lots of mods uh, to be put onto servers, which made it too difficult for new players to uh, really get into the game. 
so what do you think is the the balance of of looking at uh, what what the uh, current players are saying and you know also applying your own knowledge of the uh more more hidden mechanics and and code of uh, of digital games well the to me the 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 balance of the the like what you should do and what the fans are saying is a bit like the the uh, advice i always give to people when they start in a new place and they have a boss that they don't communicate very well it's the and they say my boss comes to me and says that we want to put a sheep in this game let's keep the the the, the our theme of sheep going here and they say but it's a <laughs> game about dinosaurs there were no sheep in the time of dinosaurs and the boss goes i want sheep so what i always tell them to do is to ask him why does he want the sheep don't start arguing about the sheep find out there must be a reason why he wants to see the sheep it might be that he wants to see something cute in the game so then i tell them well you don't gonna you're not gonna get a sheep but i've come up with this really cute dinosaur baby that we can put in the game that fits the theme and so on and so forth so this is what i think that the the you can easily get wrong if you just do exactly what the the latest guy in the forum said about the game we want sheep it's the and if you just start putting sheep everywhere then the the um and uh suddenly you're not you're not trying uh, true to the vision of the game so I think it's very important to listen to the fans. You need to understand what they are after, because they will ask for specific features if it's a video game, or they will ask for a specific rules for game. I mean, the everybody in the Warhammer and 40 gate they said that we want our army to be more powerful, mm-hmm. and that doesn't lead anywhere if we make just the, the the do a power creep everywhere. Instead, we want to find out that the if you're a dwarf player and the the you think that your army should be more powerful let's find out why you are losing is there an imbalance and try to find a, a way to fix that so if the dwarfs are slow and everybody else is running rings around them maybe we can come up with a something like anvil of doom that can shoot lightning bolts and the the freeze the enemies so the the dwarfs can get into grips with them without breaking the 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 the, the fantasy of playing a dwarf army which are slow slumbering heavily armored so the the I do think you have to listen to your fans, but you have to listen to what the the what is the experience they want to have rather than just do exactly the change they are asking for. Hmm. Yeah, the the old the old adage for this one is that you don't give them what they want, you give them what they need. And because players will want all kinds of things, they'll want something because I say particularly when you're trying to balance asymmetrical forces. Uh, they'll always want, want what the other guy's got that they don't have. But mm. the fact that they don't have it is part of what makes the forces asymmetrical. And you, you remember I said I've been in spaceship games since back in the day. My earliest sort of foray into mind-numbing complexity in spaceship games was Starfleet Battles. And gradually over time, Starfleet Battles listened to its fans uh, and gave everybody everything, basically. So you had Federation ships with Klingon-style disruptors on them, and you had Klingon ships with photon torpedoes on them and all the rest of it, because people wanted it. And it actually just robbed um, that setting of all of its flavor. You know, once you have Federation ships throwing plasma torpedoes around like Romulans do, you, they're not really Federation ships anymore. And there, there is a kind of Rubicon that you end up crossing if you try and please all of the people all of the time. Um, so, 
within that, as Thomas says, you have to listen to what noise they're making and try and determine what's at the root of it all and what would actually fix it, which isn't necessarily the first thing that you get presented with because at the end of the day, they're players, they're not designers. It's not their job to figure out how to make a better game. It's your job to do it. They'll give you the best suggestion they can come up with and that'll be based on their personal experiences and their, you know, how much of a say how much granularity they like in their games, how much complexity they like, how much of a skill-based game it is, and that's going to vary a lot from person to person. So you've got to try and take an aggregate of all of that, figure out what's at the root of it, and do the fixes where necessarily, if you find you need fixes. Hmm. Uh, James, Mike, any other follow-ups on that? Well, I think Andy's combat leads very well into uh, a preceding question, uh, which is that there's... You know, as as designers, there's conflicts between, you know, simulationism, uh, you know, trying to uh, uh, get a, a particular story that you're, you're telling, uh, the granularity of the game mechanics themselves, and also just the, the cinematic feel, especially in, in many of the digital games. So how do you guys tackle uh, just balancing these different aspects uh, in your in your various games? Uh, I would say it's the know thy audience. If you're making a niche game for a Asian fans, like I remember when I played Robotech for the first time, oh my reasons, that was complex. But there are people who love it. They might not be the mainstream, but there are people who love it. If you're making a game for them, then you're making a game simulation first. Again, that's not the kind of designer I am, therefore I have never written an edition of Robotech. But there is nothing wrong with that. In general, for the big mo uh, momentum of the games in digital and tabletop has been going towards more elegant, streamlined rules that they, they bring the depth out of the, the, the using of the rules in many multiple ways rather than just writing a rule after rule after rule after rule. Having said that, it's the, like Mordheim was, uh, was a game that the, the, had a lot of random elements in it by design, and I did write a hell of a lot of tables for you to roll dice on, that the, the injuries <laughs> and exploration and the, the things could happen, and a lot of very weird weapons oh, yeah. and pieces of armor and equipment. And that was on purpose, because that was part of the storytelling of that game. So the, the to me, this the first determine who you are making a game for. Quite often, it is that the, the you are making it for yourself, but there is still even I, sometimes I enjoy more of a session game, Quite often, I enjoy more of a story-driven game. It's it works on other media as well. I mean, look at I imagine Star Wars if the space uh, spaceship battles were realistic, and they most <laughs> yeah. certainly are not. But would it be the biggest franchise in the world? I doubt it. Mm, yeah, just so I can only back that one up. That it's it really is a case of um, trying to figure out who the people are that this game that you want to make would appeal to is probably the best way of putting it, and roughly how many of them are there, and how hardcore they are about it as well. Hardcore fans are fantastic. They're, they're the, the absolute people who will proselytize about your game, get other people to play it, and really, really sink themselves into it in a, in a way that a casual player never will. On the other hand, the hardcore gamers can't be your entire customer base as a rule because that's a shrinkingly small number of people in comparison mm. to the number of people that you need to make a game for. What you have to hope is that you somehow manage to bridge that that gap between the sort of like the casual gamer and the hardcore gamer 
so that they, they can pass along from casual to hardcore and keep growing your, your number of players over time. Because basically, if you make a hardcore game, the hardcore players will love it. There are a limited number of them. Over time, they will drift away from you and be drawn to other games. So you're dooming yourself from the outset if you decide from the outset this is going to be a hardcore game. Because no matter how much people declare that they want a hardcore game and it's the only thing they'll ever play, they, they won't stick with you forever. <laughs> yeah. That'll never happen. You need people to be able to come in from being casual players, have a good new player experience, get into it and go, oh yeah. And then ideally you want to make it sure that there's a game there that has layers of depth to it that they can then discover and go, oh yeah, there's more to get into it. There is a meta game, there is a micro game to it, and so on and so forth. You can't just learn the entire game in a week. But I say it's horses for courses, really, and it all depends on your player base and what kind of game you're trying to pitch. The little hardcore element. The the interesting thing about the about the type of mechanics you use and then how you build the game and the I think Tomas said about streamlining a game uh, because you know the more stuff you put in, uh, it becomes more expensive to make this game. Is that um, is that quite important with the I mean, what's the um, James? It's, is it? It's No Man's Sky. Oh, oh, right. No Man's Sky. Yeah, that's the is... uh, the simulated universe with planets you can explore. Because that's a procedurally generated game. So the important yeah. thing there is that you're trying to use small set of written mechanics, but that can allow lots of emergent gameplay. So that small set of mechanics and 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 the the assets you're using. Have to be very well designed so that when you, you know, you plug in your random numbers and someone goes off and go, essentially rolls a dice and they discover planet planet X Y Z, um, the game still still runs. It's still fun, but it also offers a more and new experiences. So, is that is that uh, is that something that you've been thinking about or been involved in? Is is that? I'm, I'm really fascinated to see. Um... Because everything I've seen videos for No Man's Sky, it makes it look like it's a fairly simple game in terms of controls and so on. You mm. know, there, there, there aren't massive menus and things like that, at least not from what I've seen so far. Maybe they're coming later. But it, it looks like it's supposed to be quite approachable, where you know you run around, you discover things, you mine things, you jump in your spaceship, you go somewhere else. It's more on the Minecraft end of the equation than, I don't know, Elite Dangerous or Star Citizen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's very good. They're making a conscious choice there to keep it elegant and keep it simple because they have a big pitch. They have a huge idea to sell there of like, it's an entire universe. You can discover planets no one else has found before. You know, they'll be named after you, Mr. Codswallop or what have you. Um, which is something that's been tried a few times in the past, but it's it's ever the allure of having this like universe-sized sandbox that you can get around. And uh, that's a particular kind of game. And I do think that it can't get overly simulationist and it needs to range more towards the elegance and the equation just because, as you say, the magnitude of what you're trying to take on there, you can't worry about how worn out your bootlaces are getting or something like that. On the mm -hmm. other hand, I would welcome that kind of level of detail in something like Fallout. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really wish them... Uh, well, it is an immensely difficult task because us humans are pattern-seeking animals. We are incredibly <laughs> at seeing through procedural stuff in games. Like a lot of games with a randomly generated dungeons or boards, I get bored very quickly, but because once I figured out the, the, the procedure, 
behind it, creating it, it's the all the sense of uh, wonder and discovery and suspension of disbelief goes away. One of the reasons why Mordheim does have so many tables is that the the it, it needs to create new compelling situations all the time. So the stuff happens like in the in Mordheim, you fall in battle, you roll an injury chart, you get captured and thrown into a fighting pit and you have to fight a pit fighter and if you defeat the pit fighter you get extra experience and then you get to roll on what kind of advance you get so every time there should be there was enough variety that the people could play virtually endless amount of games get completely new results every time they do something and the, the and they could never see through all the tables i had but of course that's a lot of work in a digital game you see, games like Uncharted, every single centimeter is beautifully rendered with an immense amount of work. I mean, I worked at Remedy. I know all about the, the, the creating every millimeter by hand. And that is enjoyable, but it's very expensive. You get a very short game and not very repeatable game. While the other end is the, the, the games uh, that are very few that have actually succeeded. NetHack is good at this. Elite back in the day, where this random generated content was good at this, and the Minecraft, of course, where the, 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 the notch very wisely gave all the work to the players <laughs> to build all the variety, just gave them building blocks. But other than that, the, the successes in this space have been very few, few and far between. We are so good at seeing randomly generated or procedurally generated content, that the, the, and we reject it inst uh, instinctively. We just don't, we gravitate towards handcrafted uh, experiences. And it's a tough thing, and I'm really, I'm like, I have my both thumbs up for the No Man's Sky people. I really hope they hit the home run with that. It, it's funny that you brought up how we're like, you know, that humans obviously were designed for pattern recognition, and yet one of the things that gives away a game that's procedurally made is if we see too many patterns. We know that isn't real because it's just there's too much there. Um, it'll be it'll be interesting where I think certain uh, so part of my research involves machine learning. I think that it'll be interesting when some of that how you make use of recursive learning models. So it kind of learns that it is being too procedural. It's made too many patterns. And it learns how to inject new um, New options into into the worlds it makes. Um, there'll be a lot of fun things with that. And the other thing with more time. I mean, so myself and James, James, I have to thank because he he had the he put in the pledge for Kingdom Death. So and I piggybacked his pledge and got a box home. And as you say, like more has tons of random tables and you know, all the combinations of things. And the same with Necromunda. There's so many tables that there's an emergent story that happens as you are rolling those dice. And we get that in Kingdom Death as well. There is so much emergent story, but under, under it all, underpinning it, the rules to the game are actually rather simple. There isn't there isn't too much to learn. It's just you need to learn not to roll, you know, s triple sixes because you know that's someone dead. Um, um, anything else you want to talk about then, uh, James? Mike, you want to follow up on that question? It's very enlightening listening to, uh, to everyone speaking, and I've kind of lost track of where our original question was at this point. Um, yeah. Any comments are welcome, or we can move on to um, the next question, or we can... I think we're running 
taking out of the main questions that were framed this interview, so we can we can also just move into some general discussion of where you know war gaming and and board games have moved to, because there's a lot of good stuff coming out and that people are working on. Uh, Mike, you got any further questions? Uh, well, I mean, I, we can we can kind of uh, guide this in that direction. Um, so uh, it was actually kind of interesting, uh, Thomas, that you brought up the the exploration tables uh, that were in more time. I'm a huge fan of that game, and I was starting to design actually a procedurally generated hex crawl for D and D fifth edition. That's actually the the mechanics I started with. Uh, taking a look at those uh, multi D six tables, uh, I eventually kind of like went away from that uh, and did my own thing, but. Uh, it's a really cool game, and I, I really uh, appreciate that. So I'm a little curious uh, about your kind of... Uh, we, we already talked about where uh, Mordheim came from originally, just like the basic idea when uh, you and, uh, and and Rick Priestley were, were hanging out talking about the you know, Y2K. Mm. But what were some of the uh, inspirations of it, and what aspects do you think uh, for this game would transition well to the computer game world? I know there already is a, uh, a Mordheim PC game that's just coming out. I think it's still in beta. Um, but what kind of uh, ideas do you think, specifically from that game, uh, would translate well, and what mechanics or ideas have you actually grabbed and used in some of your other uh, parts of your career in uh, video games? Yeah, If you look at the... Um... A game like NetHack that I mentioned, they got the handcrafted versus procedurally generated right. The 90% or 90% of that game is a procedurally generated dungeon and enemies and uh, item robs, and then they have a very deep layer of the, the things like, what if, if it drops an egg? Yeah, well, you can hatch it, then it rolls on another chart of the, the what kind of thing comes out of it. Hopefully not a cockatrice, but it could become your pet. Uh, if you eat it, it might be dragon's egg, and then you learn to breathe fire. There was a lot of this emergent thing built in it, but that alone wouldn't have been enough. They had those handcrafted rooms, like the the, the giant bee's nest, or the dragon's lair, or the, or the, the, the trade village, that were actually done by hand by designers. So once you get there, that was like a crescendo in it. And this was very much true for Mordheim. It was the NetHack was a big influencer in that that the I left a lot to the, the, the gods of dice. But then if you found one of the very, very, very rare magic items in that game, I I really put effort into crafting those into things with history that the were not randomly generated. They were heirlooms that were super rare and they were part of the fabric of fiction. So what I learned from that game was that the, the balance, if you're using randomness and the procedural generation, then you know how to interpose the handcrafted pieces within it. It's the, the, it's the for example, I helped just recently one of my friends who was making an endless runner game and the, he asked, how can I make it uh, different? I said, the, the have the most of the game, the usual stuff that you use your reflexes to turn left, right, uh, jump up, go down, but then create these handcrafted experiences in the middle that are the high points where there are high rewards. So I think the, the what what's called, some people call gaming cadence, or some people call keep pacing, it's the the is is to learn how to vary the the randomly generated content. Like in a Japanese RPG, you get random encounters all the time, and then you have those big boss fights. That's the most classic mm-hmm. uh, design solution for cadence and pacing. But I think it's underused. It's almost completely used nowadays for combat, 
that you have handcrafted encounters and then you have lots of random encounters with random drops. And nothing wrong with that. That's a great classic design. But I think it could be leveraged more. So what I'm trying to do it's the, the in the games more and more is to look outside of just combat that how can I interpose handcrafted sections uh, within a, a sort of the, the cookie cutter content it's the, to create the, uh, the high points because it's also important what I found is that if you do the whole game as one high note then nothing stands out it's all just a on the wire. I love Bayonetta 2, for example, but it was almost exhausting to play because every single chapter was just one big boss fight. And <laughs> Platinum are a tremendous developer, but I was exhausted playing after each episode. I love the game. I love Bayonetta 1. But I think in Bayonetta 2, they, they went, if, if I can criticize such a brilliant developer, they went a bit overboard with having no uh, quiet sections and no normal combat. It was always a larger-than-life boss fight. So the, this is something that the, the, I think I learned from Mordheim. And the, the, uh, to a certain extent, the other games I did at GW was that the, the, uh, not everything can be the, the, the crescendo. You also need the lulls. The, you need the ebb and flow. So the, the, And that's much more of a philosophical design decision rather than a... Uh, a, a, a learning how to do probabilities because all the technical stuff the people get hung up about mechanics and mechanics are important but at the end of the day it's the the I think it's um, more important to think about the experience than just the mechanics for I'll give you one example I have a friend in a gaming company that will remain unmentioned and they did a everything based on a B testing so they had for every game mechanic, they had two options they came up with, as different from each other as possible. And then they observed the player behavior and went with the ones that the players preferred. But they ended up with a game that was really dull and very samey, because the people gave very similar answers to every question. So the, the, I think the, the, the pacing has to be, there has to be a vision by a designer or designers, and you have to have faith in your vision to see it through because if you just go by a a a a b testing or a you just have a continuous high note you create a game that's the the is 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 has no color palette it's all just the same mashup of everything hmm. that's a that's a really good point it um talking about the the pacing and these high notes and like quiet parts it reminds me of uh, left for dead they had some um, a director in it which managed AI encounters, and it would sometimes give you these wonderful quiet bits where there wasn't really anything around. And then, if you kind of if you'd been sneaking about, it would go, okay, now's probably a good time to go a million zombies and just like <laughs> throw them all. Like you'd get really tense and you'd get really worked up. And um, well, the the key of that you see is that those quiet moments in that context are helping to build the tension of the game. You know, if it's endless blathering, shooting zombie heads for like twenty minutes, there there is there is no cadence to the game. It's just a single one-note experience, and and far less interesting than yeah, if there's some frenetic combat and then it breaks down a little bit and it's a bit quieter and you're sneaking about but still wondering when the next horde of zombies is going to turn up. That that's just a that's I think a really great example of using good pacing to help enhance the experience. 
because Thomas is absolutely right. One note games get dull very quickly. You know, they they can be exhausting. You need to have uh, sort of like natural feeling breaks that come along. Uh, I think it's one of the reasons that I, going back to the, the whole thing about procedurally generated things, why I'm enjoying Planet Side so much. To ding on about that again, <laughs> is because it's unpredictable. People are unpredictable. It's full of people, so it hasn't got that same same. Even though some of the fights kind of do fall into as you fight over the same bases and stuff like that, you will tend to find people in similar spots. It's never quite the same. But also, one I think one of the appeals of Planet Side is it does have a kind of natural rhythm to it. Where there are quiet moments when you know you fought off the last attack and you're thinking about whether to go and attack their base next or not, it's not all frenetic all the time. And uh, I think a well-managed experience done in a narrative sense uh, makes the most powerful game of all. Uh, the Last of Us was probably the finest example I've seen of that in recent years, where they managed to put together a game which intercut some really, uh, you know quite violent action with a lot of sneaking around and a lot of uh, storytelling as well. Uh, successful storytelling in that it, it gave you an emotional investment in the characters. And that sort mm. of combination was really powerful. I was surprised how powerful it was. The, um, with regards to pacing, I think, uh, and and how, how you say, you know, you can't make the entire experience a high point because, as you say, it, it exhausts you and then nothing really stands out. I think it's actually, it rings true for so many different game, uh, for game types because um, this was part of the reason why when we um, we were pointing out that the on our previous episode when we did the interview about uh, the Nordic LARP experience and White Wolf's recent... Um, uh, vampire LARP they ran, which was a Nordic experience, only a third of the players there were vampires, and their reasoning for that was, if everyone's a vampire, no one's a vampire. And so it's it's loading pacing, both pacing and also, I think, loading uh, how you build the world, both in character choices, are all things that lend to making things stand out and, and uh, makes it a more uh, realistic, maybe more realistic, but more um, immersive experience or something. Not maybe exp immersive isn't the right point. Um, yeah, I think it just highlights. Uh, you know, you've got things which are highlights rather than just being bashed over the head. You're all vampires, or you know, there's zombies everywhere. Kill them all, uh, all the time. Uh, Mike, any follow up on that? Oh, or Thomas, you've got a point there, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You can actually build it in game. Mechanics. You look at the, the, for example, in Warhammer, it's the the of 40k where the armies when they stand uh, start out. There was there is a reason why close combat uh, uh, is is so important because you don't start with the two generals dueling in the beginning of the battle. You do your tactical maneuvering, you do your long distance shooting, you start moving your troops, and then you get into the, the, the melee and the nitty gritty of the things. I mean, what I always loved about both Warhammer and 40k before I joined GW was that the, the game got more exciting as it went along. I mean, of course, sometimes you got a, a, a games that turned too early. But the, the, the game, by both by design and by luck, because designers do need luck as well, it was a game that the, then, uh, that the always uh, allowed the, the, the excitement to build up. I mean, you look at something game like Hearthstone and lots of other collectible card games, whatever, in digital or physical space, the, the very simple rule that the amount of 
uh, action points or power points or whatever you call them in each game, it goes up every turn. It's brilliant because it means that the, the, the really big plays, the, the multi-card combinations, the, 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 the uh, being able to play the big guns, they don't happen on turn one. But you start building the excitement, preparing to play the Misty as you go along. And that, to me, is a very good design because it means that the, you can do meaningful t things right from the beginning, but the, the, all the big plays are loaded up to the later of the game and you see them coming and you are, you're jonesing for them. It's the, and I think that's something that a lot of the games that don't last, that don't stick around, that don't stick to players' mind, don't have that quality. They don't have that, the, the, the build-up of momentum, the ebbs and flows, the, the, the valleys. And it's also understanding the, the, the psychology of the players. Like the Left 4 Dead is a great example. In a good zombie book or zombie movie, it's the it's not just fighting hundred percent of the time. The, the the suspension, the creeping horror, the, the expectation of the, the when the zombies come is at least as important as the actual moments of fighting. And The Last of Us is a great example. It's actually very touching the story and the characters are very powerful. Fighting if they it, it, if it did not have those quiet moments where you learn to care about the, the Joel and the girl, it's the, the then the fighting wouldn't have anywhere near as much impact. You don't want to see Joel horribly dying once you invested in him emotionally. And this is something that I see a lot of designers missing in their games. And this is, I mean, for the same reason you said for Left 4 Dead, it's the same reason why if anyone says, what's your favorite horror um, computer game, I always go for uh, Silent Hill 2 because there are so many quiet moments in there where all you're doing is interacting with uh, the, the, the character you're meant to be protecting who has some emotional tie to your character and they're just slowly building that emotional tie until you know, they, they do some really horrible things to, uh, to them. Um, which, which reflects also, and that's, that's an important lesson. I think, Mike, we talk about that a lot when we're talking about running World of Darkness games, because you can't just have it wall-to-wall -wall mm -hmm. horror, gore, vampires all the time, and the same for werewolf especially, because those moments then, uh, when, they, when they're important, don't feel important. There's an armor which says that in every game to have any investment in it, you have to have a sense of what's at stake. What do mm. I stand to lose here? I think. I think also. Why is it bad if I lose? I think also for a, a sense of what the normal is and what is considered a normal yeah. point. And if you're doing horror games and modern horror, what is considered mundane? Because you know you want to you want to creep people out. You want to set a baseline of what's mundane, and then you can really you know crank up the uh, the tension and the horror. Uh, Mike, any points you want to bring up? No, I think that just spell covers it. Yeah, yeah. There's a little anecdote on that. The the that this was actually when the the in which the I mean the world of darkness has been huge in my native country of Finland. I was quite active in the 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 both the RPG and the Lobbing series. The and the it came to they gave me the vampire accounts book to write in Warhammer. And what I did take away from that was that the often in the world of darkness it's the 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 vampire families that are not all out 
fighting are the most memorable and the the I obviously kept the the the, the different uh, bloodlines for the Warhammerites the, I kept the 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 blood dragons and war castines who were the rulers and the warriors but actually it was the all female vampire line the Lamians that I did that have had like the most persistent fan base and they don't they are not a a a warrior vampires their whole thing is that the, the queen neferata stays in the shadows and it the, gets the, the powerful women of the human realms to be infected by vampirism and tries to take them all from the shadows, which was sort of a little bit of my tribute to the world of darkness. Mm-hmm. And the, the, I think that's the, the in design, it's, especially if it's a game about fighting like Warhammer, it's, you would think that the only thing people will care about is the, is the big burly vampire dude like Lad Trakul hitting people on head with a sword. But actually what stood the test of the time, perhaps the best of the things I created there were the where the, the, the subtle female vampires in the shadows because they they are something that the, the people I mean the out out all out fighting everybody's doing anyway. But the, the it was something that people get their brains working. Hey, what if the, the Empress of the Empire was actually a female vampire? It, the, that's more interesting the, the, in the long term. I mean, Warhammer always had, and 40k has a massive amount of background. It's the, the, and do you need background for battle game? I contend you do. It's, it would be a, a, a claim that no, it's all about armies fighting or people shooting, so you just need kick-ass miniatures, the, the rules. That's but actually, the I and a lot of fans, the, the, the I work with is the, over the years, it's the they spend more time poring over the, the army books and codexes and the histories, hearing about the, how many how many opinions does the wings of Sanguinius have, rather than the, mm-hmm. the just about the, the, which also is a big subject. It's the, I think it's very important, because in 40k, for example, you care about space marines, it's the, the your favorite chapter, even for it actually, of course, once you played them, it's the all the figures come back and you can play with them again. But the the your brain creates your attachment. You don't want your favorite chapter commander to die in battle, even for you know it's permanent. Yeah, but it, it comes back again. You need to be emotionally invested in what you're fighting for. I think to to really enjoy a game fully, and, and having a good background is what actually expedites that and uh, you know allows people to lavish some self, some sense of self into collecting their own army or playing a character in that world. So I think it's really, really key to, to be able to be rooting for your team, whether it be female vampires or anything else. Hmm. Well, you know, for most of this, really, uh, there's a really like nice little bit in um, Kingdom Death, even. I've not, not had a chance to play very much, but one of the first things you have to do with your... Uh, your little survivors is you have to give them a name, and <laughs> as soon as you give them a name, they get one point of survival that they can use to try and desperately not die to something horrible in the darkness. <laughs> um, and there's just something about it. So even if even if you're someone who's just playing this game mechanically, and to you they're completely indistinguishable as just like meat bodies to stick weapons on, mm. you've had to give them a, give them a name, and you 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 might actually start to feel something about like you know. Meat Shield. Meat Shield is going to get hit in the head from that lion, and he's going to die. 
Well, yeah, Necromunda, Necromunda of God. I love the too much of a summer and more was was, uh, was was spent playing a huge Necromunda campaign, and Outlanders was just awesome when that came out. And again, it's I see all that type of that level of um, just world building that you you can and you can do. And I was thinking, like, how both Mordheim and Necromunda were also lent themselves quite well to the fact that you could change the exploration charts and or, or change just very subtle things, and suddenly you could go, well, we're not on Necromunda, we're on actually a different world where slightly different houses, you know, different houses are in charge, weapons have slightly different rarity, or you know, there is a greater presence of gene stealers than a gene stealer cult. Um, and you could do the same with Mordheim. You could, you could, with different. Um, if you made like the Weirdstone less important or not present, you 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 would change the dynamic of that setting so that rather than say, you know, you're adventuring through through Mordheim, you could have uh, I don't know, you could have some crazy pseudo Venetian city in Talia, um, and. It's quite easy to just with subtle changes change the the tone and the I, feel I, I of those part games. Of the, the popularity of those, I think, part of the popularity of those games, the lasting popularity they've had, is that they do kind of lift the hood a little bit on games design. Of like, mm. there you go. Here's a, here's a load of designs, a load of mechanics, and so forth. It's pretty easy, and it's encouraged to actually start developing some stuff of your own. Um, it's a real toolbox kind of an approach to, to making a game. Yeah, yeah, and you look at the Mordheim spawned a altered settings, the the Empire's countryside, the ruins, kept jungles of Amazonia. This is all fan-made stuff, and I, I just couldn't be happier. It's mm. the and I don't think like the Mordheim's been going strong fifteen years. It's arguably now more popular than it's ever been. Partly, of course, because of the computer game. It's the 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 renewed the reach and interest. Um, Necromunda, uh, if you. Confrontation. God knows how long it's been going. Twenty-five years. And you have a better view on this. I don't think that it, yeah, yeah. it could do that continuous official support if it didn't engage the creativity of the of the fan base. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And Gorkamorka as well. Still, still bobbing along despite uh, being out of print for whatever it is, eighteen years or something like that. I think. I think my uh, my sister. Uh, hates me because of that game uh, because uh, uh, I made her, she was at Uni in Manchester and she had to uh, stand in line in the store there to pick up a copy of that game for uh, my Christmas <laughs> present that year so she really really hates me for um, her her Games Workshop store experience and when I think about it having worked for Games Workshop in the store I'm kind of like yeah that was really harsh yeah, on that really sucked. <laughs> it did suck um, I think yeah, Gork and Morka, I mean, I think also going back to the longevity of these games and their pop, their, their kind of resurgence um, recently, I think that's that's somewhat tied to how 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 much there is now or, or how much easier it is for people to create both miniatures and, and or scenery because we've got so much cool, like, laser-cut uh, MDF scenery. I've just seen there's, like, some... Wonderful orc shantytown scenery that's mm. uh, about to be released, and for Mordheim, there's just so many different miniature ranges. Oh, which, if you just go, you can just pick what you want and the bits. I mean, for me, I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit crazy. So I, I am, um, 
because I was preparing to play Kingdom Death and we had to wait so long for that to come out of uh, Kickstarter, but it was worth it. I dug out my copy of um, Hybrid uh, that Rackham made, like, what, over ten years ago. And it's such an amazing board game. I mean, you look at it and you go, wow, is that... Was that made back then? And I've just been picking out, you know, finding more miniatures, and it just adds to that board game. And I think at some point I want to try and use the armies I've collected for it because they will work wonderfully as some Mordheim gang um, or um, Raging Heroes. I've picked, I've got the um, the Jailbirds. They make brilliant Escher because you're lucky to find a full Escher gang on eBay, not going for extortionate amounts of money. Um, you know, Any? It's oh, go on. Say, the, the, the fact that these skirmish games uh, of various stripes are still going really, really strong doesn't do it. It makes you kind of proud. It makes me kind of proud about Necromunda and Yorkamunda and Wartime that they're, they're kind of triggered off something that's still rumbling today. And so many games that obviously draw from them for that have come out recently. Because yeah. I mean, like Frostgrave, um, which. Yeah. Again, it's very popular, and, and all these other skirmish games, it's quite easy to, to see where people have spent lots and lots of time also you know, playing Necromunda or Mordheim. Or... No, and uh, I should say, credit where credit's due, I'm going to say it again, really, without uh, Blood Bowl or without Jervis Johnson, there were oh, yes. things. Because I mean, he was kind of the way, he showed the way forward to us about how you could do um, a persistent sort of team that could develop skills and so forth, and yet still balance off against other teams and things like that. Mordheim's, I don't know, Mordheim, Blood Bowl's a really good, um, a really great example of, of a game that exists in so many different media types, because we not only have the board game, which still continues to the stay and is getting a new edition, finally. Uh, someone saw the light and went, let's do a new edition. Um, uh, it, you know, it exists as, as quite a popular computer game that I think Cyanide, um, has the, the developed? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I wish they would do more stuff with Rackham stuff though, because I know they've got the rights to Rackham stuff, and I'm like, come on, I need my miniatures back again. Um, <laughs> they and then also Blood Bowl exists as a team manager card game. Yeah, fancy like, flight the card game. Yep. Team mm. Which have I've never you, played. I'm told is very good. Have you ever thought possibly where where both uh, let's let's go with Necromunda and and say Mordheim, where you've had ever thought they could exist in slightly different game formats? Other than uh, computer games. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Mordheim, it's the, the um, uh, Necromunda, Kokamoka, I would see them working as collectible card games, obviously. Board mm. games, where they, 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 they actually do the uh, the city of Mordheim or the Underhive as a, a, a Space Hulk style, a uh, modular uh, PCs that you discover as you go along. Totally could see that working. Uh, I could do a lot of RPG campaigns in the, the Mordheim, and I would be damn surprised if there isn't for Necromunda too. I think there would be wonderful RPG settings. It's the... Uh, and I think the, the there is an MMO space. There is a missing a team-based MMO where, where you wouldn't, instead of playing just a one guy, You'd actually have a the whole gang or warband with you. I could see many ways doing a game of that ilk. It's the the. I wanted to go back to your earlier point, by the way. You said that the, the resurgence. I think it's a synergy of a lot of things that's caused this. 
it's the internet really taking off uh, from the point that they came out. So now there are forums and the news groups and the, the Facebook pages that are very active. And like you said, there is 3D printing. There is a ability for people to produce a lot of stuff uh, quite professionally now themselves. So I think it's a synergy of many things that cause this. It's the, I just wanted to, to, to put the point across. Mm. Um, yeah, Andy, I mean... Uh, Necromunda, I mean, is <laughs> so well loved. I mean, I'm kind of surprised actually that that is there. An, I don't think there's a Necromunda setting book for any of the 40k role plays. But no, it uh, Necromunda fell into a kind of weird place. I think in terms of licensing, right? Uh, is is the the real story about it? Uh, which I only say because I wrote a novel for Necromunda when Black Library was still doing Necromunda novels. And they stopped doing Necromunda novels because it was in, in some sort of weird space, IP mm. place. So I know that there's been talk uh, in more recent times about perhaps doing a PC version of it, which I would really love. I'd love like an XCOM style yeah. uh, term. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Necromunda. <laughs> I really would. Yeah. <laughs> I think. I think the um I think we've we've joked about it a few times. I keep trying to tell, suggest to Mike that either he or I run uh, a Warhammer Fantasy RPG setting more time and again. I think yeah. I'm really sad there isn't that book for Warhammer Fantasy roleplay. And um, again, it mostly has the same issues as Necromunda. It falls into that position where if you start developing stuff for the roleplay game that has a knock-on effect on the IP in general and what the the actual war game is. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I get the impression that Workshop Bless its Cotton Socks likes to try and keep its IPs sort of partitioned. Yes, from yeah. each other. Mm. Um, so that kind of crossover into the Warhammer world RP kind of it, again, it falls into a bit of a weird space for them. Yeah, it's it'll be it'll be interesting to see how successful Mordheim is as well as when it as as a as a um, as a computer game as well because. Mm. It's it's a funny time for it to be out. What with the changes to Warhammer in general, and the same with the Total War uh, Warhammer. I'm really um, looking forward to Total Warhammer. I'm, yes. I'm so yeah. I like the Total War game. I've yeah. enjoyed all of them, and I'm going to really enjoy using orcs. So. Yeah, I mean the jury still out on the the what will happen with the Age of Sigmar. It's how successful it will be. I mean, one thing with the GW stuff always was that the 40k is such a phenomenal success that the, the games that would be for any other games company smash hits. If they get compared to, to uh, 40k, that's, that's a tough comparison to them to do. It's the same thing as my friends at Riot Games. It's tough for them to do a second game because League of Legends is so successful. Mm. It's the same thing within the MMO space. It's the how do you follow up on World of Warcraft? It's the 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 uh, success comes with curses too. It's the but that's why I'm encouraged with the GW's case that they they are spinning off the specialist games. It's the uh, the more they are their own thing and don't require the the main company's support. It's the if they can exist on their own, the better. It's the the but yes, it's the the it's it's tough to make one of the of the specialist games when your number one game is so successful. Mm. Okay, um, we're getting, I think we're getting close towards the end, so we'll just finish up with a few with a few things and then you can tell us about all your more recent projects that people should definitely take a look at. Um, so, 
out of um, let's go with the what's the most your gem of a game mechanic where you've you've put it into either a computer game or a war game or whichever type of game and gone that just worked awesomely and that just shows the type of game that I wanted it to be. So Andy Automaster, you can just jump in with with your favourite one there. You first, Thomas. Okay, my favourite mechanic of all the time. It's the, that's a tough one. I think that the... I'll, go, I'll carry on with the tabletop space. It's the... Uh, I think the, the, the amount of uh, depth I got into the Mordheim's exploration chart where you just throw a bunch of t- dice and you can influence them in many ways, like how many heroes survive, what kind of heroes you have, what kind of equipment you have, and you got to re-roll or modify one of the dice, and then the, the what you find is based on the multiples you find, which creates this risk-reward. If you have re-rolls and you have two, three ones and two sixes, that do you try to get an extra six or not? It's the, the mm-hmm. all this choice comes out of the out of the woodwork. I really like that. I like when I can make one thing, one dice roll, one card play into something really meaningful and something that engages your 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 imagination again and again. So that's probably of all the game mechanics I've done, it's my favorite that I really managed to cut. The originally, Exploration Chart needed you to throw the dice three or four times, I think, and I managed to get it down to one, and I think mm. it was deeper that way. So I'm really proud of that one. Cool. Andy? Um, I think for me, it would probably be... Um, Blast markers, suppression markers in Epic Forty Thousand. Oh right, yeah, I love them. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And, and you know what? They've cropped up in loads of other games since. So I know we got something right. And that for me was it's it's an example of a darling actually that we didn't murder because mm. it actually performed a useful enough function within the game that it was it became key to it. And because what I was trying to tackle with that idea was that you know usually on the tabletop space. A troop has got it's in one of two states. It's alive or it's dead. Yeah. Either that, or you're tracking damage points on it, and that turns into a it, it, its own set of problems necessarily. So that idea that you could have a kind of intermediate state of being degraded temporarily uh, due to enemy fire, and because you know if you read a lot about history and so forth, you know suppressive suppressive fire is a real thing. You know people do duck when bullets are flying. And it was actually managing to get all of those elements into what was actually a very simple mechanic that actually enhanced the look of the game. So you put little explosions on around, you know, units that were fighting, and that was cool. All those things coming together, I think, is my. If you know, if I was to pick out one little mechanic that I is is my favourite when I put into a game, it was that one. I no, that's a really good choice. I mean, I I'm trying to get my copy of everything for Epic 40k dug out from my mother's um. I think I think it's all in the shed somewhere, and I'm just oh, just eager to my, get it my advice, out. My advice, Chris, is is try Epic Armageddon if you haven't, because that's really good, and it's a, a happier compromise okay. between the the very elegant sort of we've stripped everything away system of Epic Forty Thousand, and the really kind of clunky but granular um, Space Marine game that came before it. Okay, I think it hits a, a happy, and we're going to say Jervis's name again. Jervis Johnson put the two of them together in Epic Armageddon, and having played it myself, I think he actually hit it right on the, the, the nail, right on the head for that one. Did a very good. Okay. Job yeah, uh, I was going to say with um, with uh, I was going to say something about Epic. No, it's gone. It'll come back. Um, <laughs> um, 
Oh, well, we'll forget that thought. I had something really interesting to say, and it totally disappeared in, in thinking about all those little space marines and my Tyranids. Um, uh, no, I know what it was. The other thing I really liked from Epic 40K was um, the Fog of War uh, mission, because it really allowed the game to be nice and asymmetric, which mm-hmm. adds... I think sometimes players of war games get too caught up in having uh, a net list, you know, the perfect list that's going to kill everything, mm-hmm. and then just all they want to play is they set up on one side of the table, you set up on the other, and they already that you can already see they know they're going to win. Whereas mm-hmm. if you start putting actual asymmetry both in, in the missions and, uh, and the variety of missions that come up, then it, it really changes and diversifies the play experience both of, of a single game or a campaign of games. So, as I say, in, in the Journeyman League for War Machine Horse being played, initially we start off with the typical starter battle boxes. And, you know, my guys, my scorn guys, we're getting just smashed by a particular uh, a particular army. But the moment we, we upped the point scale and we added in all these other missions, the dynamic of the game completely changes. And I think Fog of War and Epic was an example of of mm. that, but with also that mystery element, which I know they've put, they've tried to put into 40k. I don't know how successful it's been in that one. I think in Epic it seemed right because you could imagine, you know, there's your main space reinforce, and then this, uh, you know, your assault marines being drop podded in to take a, a particular objective. But you never wanted to feel like, should I put them in now or should I do it do it later? Because it could be too late at that point, or it could be too early. It was a, mm-hmm. it made it a, a very good command and control type of war game. I think it, it kind of goes back to something Thomas was saying earlier on about you. you ideally, you want games to come to a crescendo. Yes. You know? I mean, in, in that tabletop gaming space of having a war game, you want it to build up so, you know, in the ideal circumstance, it all comes down to some dice rolls on the last turn. The last uh, dice yeah. roll of the last turn is what decides it. Maybe not ideal circumstances. But that's the kind of... That's, that's the cell that you're trying to go for. That That's the idea that's there at the heart of it when you start a game. And as you say, when you line up against the depressingly familiar sort of like force that you know will crush you, that's one of the worst experiences there is in tabletop gaming. So as designers we always try and design you away from that if we can because it, it, it is a pitfall that you can end up getting into where you just line up and play gets you to that point of like well, everybody just picks up things that are good when you line up and play then, don't they? And that gets a bit very boring very quickly. Great. Um, Mike? And James, any last comments there? And then we'll we'll move on to the final bit of where we can get contacted and plugging all the current projects that are going on. No, I think I, I think I'm good. You're good, yeah, Mike. I'm I'm all good. I'm good to go. Okay. Um. So, uh, let's start off with the one which I've got more details on because I I grabbed it because uh, Tomas said to ch- check it out, and I completely missed this in everything when I was looking for it. So, Andy, you've worked with Mark Gibbons and Ryan Miller and some other guys, which I haven't got down on my list, on a card game called Dark Deeds, which I saw there's a video of um, some gameplay from Adepticon from a, a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. So, do you want to just explain to our listeners what Dark Deeds is? Because it seems like just the type of thing that vam- players of Vampire the Eternal Struggle would quite enjoy. Um, well, again, Dark Deeds is a game built around a premise, and the premise is that you are all the minions of this unnamed dark patron who has commanded you to set forth into your typical giant fantasy, slightly crumbling metropolis to go and do nefarious deeds for him. 
Um, so it takes the form of two decks of cards. There's a street deck and a tavern deck. And the street deck basically represents the citizens of the city. And they kind of proceed along uh, down the street. And that includes, you know, clerics and artisans and merchants and things like this. And guards as well. But in amongst them are mixed in the, the nemesis cards. And these are the, the actual people that uh, your patron wants you to eliminate. Uh, so it's tax collectors and sheriffs and princes and things like this. And you can get stuff from the tavern, which will help you out. Yeah, you can find rumors of loot that you can steal off citizens, things like you know, weapons and so forth, and bribes and things that will help you to take down the nemesis. Uh, and you can also start rumors, because basically whenever you get up to anything with Ferris, you, you start to accumulate suspicion points, and you can shift suspicion onto other players, hmm. uh, and get the guards chasing after them instead of you, and so forth. Uh, and it all rolls along in this kind of a pace, and... It's a fun little game. It's, it's like 100, 100 cards in a box uh, with some very nice components. We went for quite a high-end game. Mm-hmm. So it seems to have gone down well so far. Uh, it's, it's only coming out in May. I think it's actually on general release, so it's on, it's on pre-order now. Okay. I'm, I will try and make it down to the UK Games Expo in a few months and hopefully... Yes, we should have some copies there. I'm hoping to go there myself. Uh, and of course, I should make a special mention of Mark Gibbons, who's absolutely pulled it out of the fire for us on doing artwork for it and done a fantastic job with it. So it's it's filled with character. You know, we've had a lot of fun, me and Mark, just talking about the background for the city and what the characters might look like and things like that. So it's a, it's a fun little game. And, uh, yeah, I hope you also get to... Andy. Oh, go on. Go on, Tomas. Yeah, I have to plug the, 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 like, those who don't know Mark Gibbons, it's his work at the Blizzard uh, Riot and, of course, at GW. It's the, if for nothing else, you should get it as a collectible because his art is always out of this world. It always has been, always will be. So the, the, ah, check it out. You should. Excellent. Um, And, of course, Andy, um, you 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 worked on Drop Fleet uh, Commander. That, uh, went through Kickstarter months ago now, so I don't know when that... What's the expected release date on we're, that? We're in alpha testing for that at the moment. Um, I went down to the Admiral's Day in Croydon last month, mm-hmm. the month before last end of February, that was. Um, so we're in alpha testing, so we're nearly there. I think we're, we're looking at May-June, so okay. time for actually shipping that. Obviously, it's the people who backed Kickstarter first. Uh, yeah, people sure. very kind, very generous backing that Kickstarter. It did extremely well. Uh, mm. It made six hundred and nineteen thousand pounds on an ask of forty thousand. That's pretty damn good. It's <laughs> uh, pretty damn good. The UK Kickstarters are always smaller than US ones. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah it's, it was astounding, absolutely astounding. Excellent. Um, and Tomas. Um, Things that you're currently working on or uh, that you want to plug? So the digital game me and Andy are working on is a little bit further away. It's the, the But it's the one thing that I get asked all the time is that, hey, will you come back to the, the tabletop space again? So there is a little bit something that me and Andy have bubbling over right now. So oh, I can't talk about the exact details yet, but I say two things. First, it's the keep your mittens ready on the Kickstarter page. Mm-hmm. And second, it's the there is my designer page on the Facebook, the Brutal Deluxe Design. 
Thomas Brennan and Brutal Deluxe game design is the come and check it out and I post all the updates of the that forthcoming project there. But the me and Andy are not abandoning the the, the tabletop space, not by a long shot. I mean, Dark Deeds is out, and we've got something coming that the, the I am really looking forward to collaborating with Andy on. And the, of course, in the long term, there is our big digital release as well. So the the but in short term, it's the come and check me out on Facebook, and the I am I am uh, armbarring Andy all the time to finally get him out in the social media so his fans <laughs> could talk to him and see what he's up to. It's the, the and I think I'm winning. I think I'm finally finally getting somewhere. Well, so they hope we will. You've won over my wife now, so she's badgering me about it as well. Oh well, well we got we got Andy to use uh, Google Hangouts for the first time on this as well. Yeah, so yeah. Oh, what's it, all it this works. New technology. It works. It works. <laughs> I'm always badgering people at work to use new technology for certain things, and uh, it doesn't always work well. Um, and well, obviously, we'll have links in the show notes for all of all of that and how they can uh, easily get in contact with you. Uh, mostly, most easiest thing is at the uh, Reforged uh, Studios uh, Facebook and uh, your website. Um, Mike and James, any last closing notes on that? Or do, if we've got a last question, Mike, we, always, we should do the interview question. We haven't done this one in a while. Oh, wow. I <laughs> forgot about that question um, until you just reminded me of it. Okay, all right. Andy, if you could be a household appliance, what would you be and why? The toaster. <laughs> Classic. Mm. Excellent. Uh, and the why is because I like toasted goods. So having them shoved in my mouth regularly would not upset me. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, now he, yeah, and, yeah, uh, now he got me thinking about food, so I would have have to go with a frying pan is just in the hope somebody would get a really good steak on me because they, they <laughs> by far my favorite food. It's, it's oh, yeah. But it's Andy's fault. He made toast made me think about think about food. <laughs> I come up with a bit more clever. It's now and now I'm hungry. I'm gonna go and go to Morton Steakhouse. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, at least you're in a place where you can go to Morton Steakhouse. Brilliant. Okay, um, well, I think that wraps up everything for um, Darker Days. Uh, Mike, um, yeah, James, yeah, you yeah. good? Yeah, so... Um, yeah, well, I, I think we should just mention where people can find us, which is, of course, uh, you can send us an email over at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com or uh, visit us on Twitter at darkerdaysradio or facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio is our Facebook uh, page. Yes, uh, we've got a blog where all the wargaming stuff is. There's yeah, the Google Plus community. Um, also, if you haven't listened to it yet, there's Network Zero, our first episode, which is Chronicles of Darkness special uh, podcast. So um, that is everything for those game lines. And we talk about how to use particular movies as inspiration for your horror games. That also means we talk about bad movies as well. Um, James, uh, you've got a gaming blog? Um, a uh, a, a kind of lapsed gaming blog at the moment. Um, yeah, you're busy yeah. right now with, with having moved and stuff. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll make sure the show notes. And finally, uh, we should just thank Andy and Tomas again for taking their time to talk to us about game design and uh, in all its forms and uh, talking about our favourites of Necromunda and Mordheim and Battlefleet Gothic and, and more. It has been an absolute pleasure, so thank you. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. Yep, thank you. Lightning. Much appreciated. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to talk, guys. Always a pleasure. Yeah. 
enjoyed it. Great. And uh, that's everything, so goodbye. Goodbye, it was great fun. <laughs>